Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 69 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Tad Williams. He's the author of several novel series, including Otherland, The War of the Flowers, and the young adult series, The Dragons of Ordinary Farm. His latest book, The Dirty Streets of Heaven, is about a cynical angel named Bobby Dollar, who gets caught up in a conspiracy involving missing souls. And then stick around after the interview as guest geek Genevieve Valentine joins us to discuss angels in heaven in fantasy and science fiction. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Tad Williams. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. Okay, so first of all, just tell us about your new book, The Dirty Streets of Heaven. What's it about? The initial idea was about the sort of similar nature between the standard version of heaven versus hell, you know, the kind of classic Western Judeo-Christian idea that has developed, and the way that the Cold War was actually run, where the whole thing was sort of happening under the surface. And uh, all of the struggle was, was to an extent, not noticed by most people most of the time. The main character is an earthbound angel. He is, um, at the beginning of the story, a fairly, uh, you know, he's, he's familiar with things. He's part of the process of earthly souls being judged after the, the people die. But then things begin to get stranger and um, other odd things in in between the sort of cold war of heaven and hell happen, and he winds up in a lot deeper than he had expected. So on one level, it's a fantasy. It's about angels. It's about demons. It's about all that stuff. On, an, on the other level, it's also very much, I think, similar to a, to a crime novel and the kind of the, the characters and the stance, I guess, of, of how it's written. So when you're writing a book where the protagonist works for God, if God is all-powerful, is it a challenge then to create problems for your protagonist? Well, the, one of the interesting things about the book, I think, is that the uh, how the universe really works is not necessarily apparent to the minions down at the bottom end, of which our main character is one. So there's a great deal of questions still about, he, you know, I mean, nobody he knows has ever met God, just as an example. The heavenly bureaucracy is huge and complicated, and the people at the bottom have only the dimmest idea of where their orders are coming from. I mean, I've always wondered, why would the forces of hell show up at Armageddon if they know that they're going to lose? But in your right. book, you suggest that they, they think they're going to win. Well, yeah, I think he actually says something to the effect that they think that's all just PR <laughs> and that they you know, have a perfectly good chance to win. And since they represent, uh, you know, sort of the chaos side of things, I don't know how, how well you remember or how well you know, like, say, Michael Moorcock's cosmology of law and chaos, but in a sense, not so much intentionally so, although I'm very familiar with him and a big Moorcock fan, but also kind of just by the way it worked out as I was thinking these things through, heaven winds up being sort of like ultimate law in Moorcock's version of things, which is something that doesn't change. It's very static. It's all about kind of the same frequency of reward and existence just keeps going on and on and on. Hell is much more uh, dynamic, uh, because the, uh, apparently, and this is the main character's presumption. I, I tend not to step in as the narrator in this because it's being told by the main character, but the main character's presumption is that hell has to be varied. Otherwise punishment is no longer effective because it becomes familiar. So hell has to be something where your punishment surprises you. And part of your punishment is that there is no getting used to things because you never know what will happen next. That's a very simplified version, but that's one of the main differences. So hell is quite dynamic and changing. It's very feudal, F-E-U-D-A-L, feudal. It's also futile, yeah. I suppose. But, but you know, it's, it's very much about whoever has the power, makes the rules, 
heaven, that's true also, but you don't know who made the power. The rules have all been made and they're not changing. Uh, so I really enjoyed the angel and demon names in the book. Uh, to what extent uh, are those drawn from folklore and to what extent did you just make those up? A lot of them come from sort of traditional folklore. Uh, as I'm sure you know, there a lot of angel names are in fact the names of uh, religious figures or you know deities and things like that that were supplanted by Christianity in most cases. That's why they're our demon names. And so some of them come from that, both the demons and the angels. Some of them I have, in fact, made up. What about the demon names like Grasswax and Howlingfell? In a lot of cases, I'm taking things like that, the names of the sort of common order of demons. I'm sort of inventing a pseudo-medieval sort of name, like the kinds of things that used to come up in witch trials you know, where the women, you know, would admit that the devil had sent them a familiar name, such and such. And they always had these kind of odd, little, strangely domestic names, you know, (laughs) that didn't really sound very dramatically devilish, but were clearly, you know, had become the common currency at the time for what devilish or demon servants would be called. Well, you know, sort of something like, uh, just off the top of my head, I mean, Lovecraft's Brown Jenkin, you know, they, they, I mean, they're, that was also probably based on these sort of medieval stories where they were named things like Creeper or Black Pat or just these very prosaic names. So that's kind of where I took those from. But as I said, they're, the names are actually invented. And I have to do that in part because I tend to have so many names and even a really short book like this that I work very carefully to keep them from being too similar sounding. Uh, so the book is uh, set where you live in the vicinity of uh, Stanford University. Uh, what are some of the benefits or drawbacks of using that as a setting? The main thing that occasioned that is as I was first approaching the idea of writing something with a kind of a noir angle to it and specifically a noir in the classic mode of being told first person by the protagonist. I also, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that one of the things about noir as a subgenre is it almost is always urban. And that's because of the anonymity of cities. That's because of the size of cities, oftentimes because of the uh, impenetrability of cities and their subcultures. And when you're trying to write something, for instance, I'll, I'll give an example. Uh, Gaiman does this all the time. You know, he, he invents these civilizations that exist just under the radar, as it were, um, because it's, it, first of all, it's very exciting for readers to think that this is right around the corner or right underneath a leaf or, you know, just behind the uh, Hogwarts track nine and a half, you know, sign or any, any of things like that. So very much for me, I wanted a city. On the other hand, I also wanted to write something where I felt very familiar with the sort of location. So I grew up in the suburbs. I mean, what's around Stanford University, as you mentioned, which is the general area that I grew up, is a huge suburban area uh, between San Francisco and San Jose, the kind of two capitals of the uh Silicon Valley, Bay Area, whatever you want to call it. So what I did was kind of just made a, an artificial city. I invented a city that sort of wound up happening instead of San Jose. So I could write local, but I could still write a city. Why did you choose the name San Judas? Well, partially because everything around here, um, certainly most of the cities are named were named by the, the Spanish missionaries, Junipero Serra's people and those after them. So most of the big cities in California, San Diego, Santa Barbara, San Jose, San Francisco are all named after saints. But of course, the nature of this particular kind of strange city, which is this slightly odd, off-kilter, Thomas Pinchonian kind of a place, was such that I wanted to name it differently. So the fact that San Judas is actually the uh, St. Jude, 
the obscure St. Jude, the patron of lost causes, the fact that people would constantly mistake that Judas, you know, that you could see the missionaries naming this place after San Judas Tadeo, the St. Saint Jude, but that everybody assumed it was named after Judas Iscariot, the guy who betrayed Christ. So it seemed like a perfect fit. In an interview uh, about two years back, you said that the book would be called uh, Sleeping Late on Judgment Day. Uh, why did you decide to change that? Uh, strictly because as I thought about how these three linked books, uh, the first three Bobby Dollar books, I'm hoping to write more because I really enjoy it. But I certainly knew that these three linked books would have an arc to them, of the, you know, of the three books. And it seemed to me, the more I thought about it, that Sleeping Late on Judgment Day was a better name for the last book of the three. I already had Happy Hour in Hell pretty much locked in for the second book. So I just, I came up with a new name for the first one and moved, moved the other one to being the last. So there will still be a Sleeping Late on Judgment Day. It'll just be the last of the three. The book describes heaven as being sort of a beautiful garden. And my initial reaction to that was that I don't really care how nice a garden it is, that if there's no internet there, I'm not interested. Uh, <laughs> well, this is one of the really interesting things about the whole thing, because as I've gotten into that, I mean, for me, any good book is not just a book that I'm writing. It's also a chance to to get in and, and research and read and learn things that I you know maybe only knew or knew a little bit about before. So one of the fascinating things about researching heaven and hell is, of course, the fact that there are so few descriptions of heaven because most people can't really explain what it would be like because most people can't imagine how eternity would be beyond a couple of sentences and they kind of leave out the eternity aspect. Whereas hell is quite often personal. It's uh, usually quite grotesque. I mean, I'm talking about sort of medieval visions and more recent people's feelings that they had a vision of hell. They're all quite individual. They're oftentimes quite specific and very odd. So what I wanted to do was to try and come up with a, a version of heaven that would sort of explain what an eternal reward might be like in a term that we can understand. And what we would understand is um, as you're saying, if there's not internet, you don't want to be there. And I think most of us are thinking, well, if I just have to keep doing the same things every day, being happy and cheerful and worshiping the Lord, it sounds really freaking boring. But within the books, there's also this kind of aspect that the blessed as they were, or those who have survived and gotten into heaven in the afterlife, after an earthly life, are somehow almost to Bobby's way of thinking, they're almost kind of like lotus eaters or hypnotized or whatever that, you know, he doesn't quite understand, but they seem to be on an entirely different wavelength, which leaves it open so we can go, oh, okay. You know, some of us will say, oh, they're kind of kept like cattle, you know, they're kept quiet and cheerful and, or they're, it's like they've been drugged or something, but also that the case could be made that Bobby just doesn't understand because he's not happy that way, that he's not connected into the Lord or whatever. So again, I'm trying to leave it open, let the readers kind of make up their own minds. I have some ideas very definitely, but I'm not necessarily certain they'll ever make it into the books. They might, they might not. I mean, so sort of our traditional notions of heaven and hell have these kind of offensive implications, such as the idea that atheists and adherents of other religions are damned. Uh, right. When you're writing for a wide modern contemporary audience how do you handle issues like that well I, one of the things and this is actually i believe it's bobby actually says so when he's talking to the the young new angel in town at one point he says basically as far as i know you know even atheists get a fair shake depending on how well they live their lives belief is no obstacle to getting into heaven. And I believe he says something also about, as far as he knows, nobody is kept out of heaven because of any of the kind of standard political issues that come up these days, not because they're gay or because they're from a different religion or whatever, but he doesn't know how it all works. So there's always that caveat with anything that he's saying. He's saying, this is what I know, and it may not be all the truth. 
Have you gotten sort of any criticism from the other direction? People who say who like the traditional views and don't like the way that you're kind of meddling with it or? I'd be lying if I said I wouldn't love to see some vigorous responses on that. And I hope if the book continues to get attention, and it has been so far, I've been very lucky. If it continues to get attention, I hope at some point that it will provoke some discussions and may already have that I haven't found. I mean, I don't really follow, you know, I'm not out looking for people talking about my book. I kind of half expect people will read the books and jump to the conclusion that I'm either saying, you know, heaven is a con job or something like that. And some other people may say, you know, well, he's just, you know, pushing that same old Judeo-Christian crap down our throats. You know, why would heaven be that much like everybody expects that, you know, so I don't know, but I, I, I wouldn't be upset if any of that happened because I think the very fact that we use these ideas as reasons to do things in our daily lives and our political lives and our national life and stuff like that means that we should actually think about them and try and figure out if they even make sense. Uh, so uh, speaking of hell, uh, do you ever worry that you'll go to hell for lying to your publisher about losing your first book in a flood? <laughs> oh, believe me, that's uh, if there's somebody's keeping score on me, that's pretty far down the list of, <laughs> of hell worthy things. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, anybody who knows me knows that I have a spiritual side, but I do not have a religious bone in my body, largely because I was not born it, you know, to a family that went to church, my parents were, and, and but neither were my parents anti-religion in some way that would have pushed me in another direction. My parents were perfectly open-minded about everything. They never tried to convince us of what was true or what was what wasn't true in their minds. Uh, we were just presented with the information that was around us and pretty much allowed. I mean, we knew how they felt. We knew they didn't go to church, so obviously that had an effect. Do you want to just explain to listeners maybe what the losing the book in the flood story is? Sure, yeah. Uh, what Dave is referring to and, and John is referring to is the fact that uh, when I had submitted my first novel to my eventual publisher, Daw Books, who are still my publisher today, many, many years later, I hadn't heard a response from them for a while. So hoping to provoke some action without seeming whiny or attention-seeking, I sent them uh, a letter, typed them up a letter saying, because of the floods here in California where my basement has been flooded, you now have the only copy of my manuscript. Could you please copy it and send it back to me? I'll pay for it. Hoping that they would, A, uh, go and find the manuscript and look at it while they were copying it and perhaps notice that they hadn't responded yet because this was several months in after submission, but also hoping like hell that they didn't know that basically California was in the middle of an eight-year drought and that there's almost no such thing as basements in California. <laughs> I, cer <laughs> I certainly have never had one. And, uh, as I may have also mentioned when telling this story, I didn't find out until years later that it was my dear friend Peter Stamfel, Betsy Walheim's husband, who had to go. And this was the days when you didn't, they didn't have bin feeders or anything. So he had to go and take this like 500-page manuscript and copy it page by page by page. As it turned out, I don't know if that had anything to do with it. They did wind up buying the book, and it's still in print. That's Tail Chaser song. It's still in print today and all of that stuff. But it took me years to be able to admit to Peter that it had been a total lie. And to Peter's uh, great credit and probably the thing that will keep me out of hell for this one, he, he immediately forgave me and laughed and thought it was a really good idea when you didn't know if someone <laughs> was paying attention to your manuscript or was using it to prop up a, a short leg on a desk. So, uh, Actually, speaking of Tail Chaser, a song, that was your first novel, and it's about a talking cat. Right. And as a writer myself, I've learned the hard way that there's this whole anti-talking cat contingent out there on the internet. I was just wondering, did you uh, have any run-ins with any of them? At this point, I have to uh, somewhat embarrassedly admit that, of course, Tail Chaser Song was written before there was an internet. So <laughs> um, I didn't, in fact, notice that at first, uh, if there was such a thing. And since then, it's kind of like one of those things that's been around for so long now. I mean, I bumped into somebody at a convention once and we were talking and this guy was a furry. And so I was <laughs> chatting with him about something and he found out my name and said like, 
oh my God, you're a patron saint of the furry movement. And I said, really? <laughs> In a kind of a startled way. And uh, he goes, yeah, you wrote Tail Chaser song, right? And I went, oh, yeah, I did. So, you know, God knows what people think about it. Obviously, some people thought it was an important step forward for furry Americans and, and others, <laughs> of, or excuse the expression, stripe. But uh, <laughs> no, I, have, I have no idea. Uh, so one of your uh, one of your popular series is the Otherland series, and apparently it's very popular in Germany. Uh, how'd that come about? The way it came about to begin with was that my wife realized that despite the fact that I was on a contract in Germany that dated back to my earliest days in the business, and that you know the books had been my my books had been sold there by my American publishers, and I was getting you know a fairly small percentage by the time it all got to me. She realized we were making a lot of money. So she began to analyze and figured out that actually I was really popular in Germany and I hadn't really found that out yet. So when the Otherland books were ready to go out, we said to the then current publisher, you guys are going to have to pay, you know, a little more now because you've sold, you know, a hundred thousand such and such copies of the last book. And they looked at the other land book and said, kind of like, well, it's not really what we wanted anyway, and it's not fantasy. And so we're not even going to offer on it. So we said, fine, put it up to auction and wound up with Klet Kata, who is my current German publisher. And who is at the time, the only thing, I think they only published two fantasy or science fiction writers at all. One was Tolkien and one was uh, Peter S. Beagle. So once they picked me up, because they are primarily a company known for literary fiction, for philosophy, or history, for you know some fairly academic high-end stuff, I had a certain uh, legitimacy that lifted me out of the genre in Germany. And then a couple of good things happened very quickly, including, among other things, they decided uh, somebody decided to do a radio play, which wound up being the longest radio play in German radio history, and all this other stuff happened and the books really took off there. And I was being reviewed in the mainstream newspapers and magazines, you know, the equivalent of the Times and the New York uh, and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and, and Time and Newsweek and stuff that hadn't happened to me in America. And um, I quickly became a more, more culturally significant than I had been to that point in the, in the States or England. It was quite startling how the same exact books that were being reviewed kind of like, you know, Star Trek novels or something here in the States were being reviewed by very knowledgeable people who were talking about the future of human civilization and about what the 21st century was going to be like economically. And it was the, sa the same books, but they had been moved to a completely different context, namely real fiction with an important, you know, with important issues being discussed, which I had always felt they were. You know, it just shows you how much of this stuff is circumstantial, how much of it is context and where you are and how fortunate you are in getting into the discussion in, you know, uh, uh, the cultural discussion. Uh, and so speaking of Otherland, uh, what's the current status of the Otherland MMO? Well, we had, they had to push back a couple of months but they're in beta now. It was originally going to be out this month. It has now been pushed back to, I think, very, very early in the next year. As far as I know, there's nothing wrong. There's just technical issues that they're working on. It's a big, huge, complicated game. And yeah, to the best of my knowledge, it's going to be probably very, very early 2013. You know, last year we interviewed R.I. Salvatore, and he spent years working on an MMO project called Amalur, which recently suffered this big collapse. I was just wondering if you were following, if you'd followed that at all. No, I haven't, but I'm sorry to hear it. That's one of the difficult things about anything being done with your material. Deb and I have kind of, Deb being my wife, Deborah Beale, Deb and I have kind of developed the, what I refer to as the George Harrison's tax man law. Um, you may remember in that song that he says, there's one for you, 19 for me. And we, we've interpreted that to mean that out of any 20 things that people come to you wanting to do with your material, you're going to be lucky if one of them comes to fruition, you know, if 5% comes to fruition. Do you follow video games at all? Or, or do you have any other involvement with the project? 
Oh, yeah. No, I've had a lot of involvement. I've been over to Singapore quite a few times. I've uh, done a lot of consultation. I've offered a lot of ideas. I've uh, met with the writer, you know, the head writer, and I'm in communication with him. And no, I've been very involved, actually. They've been very good about keeping me involved. And one of the things about it in the long run is I'm kind of thinking I want to that instead of doing a, a conventional sequel to Otherland someday, that I would like to try and do a sequel that is actually an interactive, you know, part of this interactive game world. In other words, that I would create story that would be uh, fitted into the game world, not as a an immutable sequence, but as a sort of a slightly coercive set of story information that would cause the the, the game participant to have all these new experiences in the game world. So it's one of the things I'm playing around with. I've been interested in interactive fiction since back in the 1980s. Uh, so other than the MMO, are there any other adaptations of your work in development? Oh, yeah. There's, there's a Tellchaser animated film, which is being done by Animatropolis out of Austin, and they're already well into the process. And they are working with a Japanese uh, animation company whose name oh, right now just skips my mind. But they are the people who did Cat Shit One, if you ever heard of that, which is a very bizarre kind of a um, Iraq war with rodents kind of thing. It's very good. Um, so anyway, they're doing a Tell Chase a Song adaptation. And at the moment, Warner Brothers has an option on Otherland. So those are two things that I can talk about. And there are various other things always at any one time floating around, but the George Harrison rule applies there as well. So uh, so I really enjoyed your story, Child of an Ancient City, which recently appeared in John's Vampire Anthology by Blood We Live. Thank you. Could you just talk a little bit about how your process for writing that story? It's hard to talk about some of these things without sounding like a complete slut, I have to say. <laughs> that story started out way back when I had been probably in the early 1980s, before I was even a professional writer, I was reading Barbara Tuckman's book, A Distant Mirror. She's my favorite historian. And one of the things, though, that she talks about in A Distant Mirror is the Battle of Nicopolis, where the Sultan Bazajet so badly kicked the ass of the the uh the western uh forces that he basically set up what would eventually become the fall of constantinople about a hundred years later or so so this was a crucial battle but it was also interesting because it was such a route so when i initially got the idea for the story of a kind of a vampire tale-telling story I wanted a reason why these characters were stuck out in the middle of nowhere for so long. And I had them, a bunch of French crusaders who were coming back from Nicopolis and were trying to make it back to Western Europe. Now, then somewhere along the line, somebody, and I suspect it was Byron Price, was doing an Arabian Nights anthology or something. I can't quite remember. And said, do you have a story? And I didn't have one at the time, but I had this unfinished thing. And I said, um, I think I can make this story into an Arabian Nights story. And at which point I changed the characters from French crusaders into inhabitants of, you know, the, the legendary version of Baghdad. And then when Byron wanted me to increase it into a short novel for a program he was doing at the time, I actually wound up working with Nina Hoffman. So the the book version is Nina Hoffman and myself. Um, and she did a really good job of mostly adding folk tales to the story, to the storytelling aspect of it. Well, I think that's interesting because the story is so um, reminiscent of the Scheherazade, uh, mm -hmm. which fits so perfectly with the Arabian Nights theme. Is that just a coincidence or... Oh, no. I mean, I definitely bent it in that way. I mean, I think it was more of a vampire story and less of a story about storytelling when it was in its early Crusaders version, but I never finished that. Whereas by the time I was redoing it as an Arabian Nights story, as you said, the whole Scheherazade and the Thousand and One Nights kind of rose to the surface. And then that became, you know, one of the dominant features. And like a lot of my work, storytelling became what the story itself was about. 
Okay, so back in episode eight, we interviewed Blake Charlton, and he described how the two of you almost came to blows the first time you met while playing basketball. And I'm just curious to hear your version of that story. I, I don't remember us coming to blows, although we're both very similar guys, uh, although Blake is much younger than I am. But we're a bit similar looking, and we're both a bit, I don't think pugnacious, but we're certainly not <laughs> afraid to bump into people and thump into people when we're playing a sport. We both have a football background, even though we mostly play basketball now. I'm sure it would make a better story if I had tried to punch him out or something. <laughs> I, as I recall, it was no more than the usual sort of testosterone fueled jostling and bumping. The way he told it is, uh, he said, who do you think you are? And you said, oh, I'm Tad Williams. And he's like, you're Tad Williams? You wrote The Dragon Bone Chair? Oh my God, I love that book. Uh, again, I don't want to uh, undercut Blake's good story. I, the, not, <laughs> the only thing I would not do is say I'm Tad Williams, assuming somebody would know who that was. <laughs> I've had an entire a professional lifetime of finding out how few people actually do know um, <laughs> what that name means and know anything about what I do for a living. So that that's kind of more like a, a good good version of a story. But I, I don't think I would actually say I'm Tad Williams. I think <laughs> I might say I'm. I don't know. I'm a writer. That's probably more how I would have phrased it. And then if he said, well, would I know you? Then I would have said, well, I'm Tad Williams. I write fantasy and science fiction. And then we might have had that conversation. All right. So, I mean, that does it for our questions. Uh, just finally, are there any other uh, newer upcoming projects you want to mention? I mentioned I'm doing the second Bobby Dollar book right now, and I'm pretty much finished with it. I'm doing a ton of short stories, including two that I've just sent to John in the last few months. And uh, one I just did for Gardner, one I'm doing for an online magazine. So I seem to be in one of my patches where I'm doing a lot of short stories all at once, which is kind of fun because it it's a change of pace for me. Other than that, you know, just the usual. People may get tired of hearing from me, but I don't think I will ever run out of things that I want to write about. All right, great. So Tad Williams, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Thank you so much for having me. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Tad Williams for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned, for our panel today, we'll be discussing Angels and Heaven in fantasy and science fiction. And we're joined by a special guest geek, Genevieve Valentine, author of the post-apocalyptic steampunk circus novel Mechanique. She was also our guest back in episode 40. So if you missed that, be sure to go check it out and learn all about her. So Genevieve, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. And listeners might also want to go check out episode 50, in which we discussed the devil and hell in fantasy and science fiction. And since we already talked a lot about demons in that episode, we're going to try not to talk about them too much this time. Though obviously, when you start talking about heaven, it's pretty natural for the subject of hell to come up as well. Probably the biggest angel-related movie to come out in recent memory was Legion, <laughs> starring Paul Bettany. Legion. And I understand that Genevieve is a big fan of this movie. <laughs> So I thought maybe we could just start out and you can tell us why do you love Legion so much? <laughs> I love Legion because it provides a really handy benchmark against which I can measure all other bad films. Because no film has been so utterly devoid of interest, so grindingly humor-free, so poorly filmed, and so desperately acted by a bunch of TV actors on hiatus as Legion. <laughs> I was really excited when the trailers for this movie started coming out because it's Paul Bettany as an angel with a machine gun. I'm like, sold. <laughs> you, uh, you couldn't lose with that premise. Because, <laughs> I mean, I love Paul Bettany. He can do no wrong, as far as I'm concerned, even though he hasn't been in a good movie in a really long time. Um, unless you want to make a case for creation, which you can, but... Nah, I'm not going to make a case for okay. creation. <laughs> so, the, so the premise basically is that God has decided to destroy humanity by sending flocks of freaky angel monsters. And Paul Bettany is the angel Michael, and he's decided to defend a diner with a machine gun. And in this diner is a woman who's pregnant with a baby that is somehow going to save the world. My take on it was sort of the structure of the story is that it alternates between kind of horror scenes and character development scenes. And the character development scenes are just staggeringly trite and interminable. <laughs> it was uh, polite of you to call them character development. <laughs> <laughs> but some of the horror, the horrorish kind of stuff, some of it I actually kind of liked. I mean, I liked the idea of scary angels. 
there was the guy who was like Mr. Fantastic, except scary. Uh, you know, the, the guy with the stretchy limbs and stuff. I enjoyed the body horror of Michael's lack of wings. They came back to that regularly. And I liked the imagery and the feeling that he, that he knew something was missing and, and it was part of his character. And I liked the fact that he was an angel in rebellion who was facing the same consequences as the last angel who had rebelled. And mm-hmm. he did it anyway, which in theory was a great setup for a discussion of free will. Uh, that never happened, of course, because we were too busy with the Mr. Fantastic vampire stretchy limbs guy. But I honestly feel like if you took Legion and gave it to someone who was really good at teasing that kind of thing out, you might have a really good movie. It might be like the wings of desire of post-apocalyptic diner movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you the one other thing I really actually did like about Legion was sort of so, so at the end, like spoiler warning, um, you know, the last... <laughs> horror-ish thing that happens is that the angel Gabriel shows up and Paul Bettany's ass whooping of this guy is so emphatic that it causes God to change his mind and decide. <laughs> <laughs> no, why are you laughing? That's what happened, isn't it? <laughs> oh no, I know. It's I don't think I'm kidding. I think you're that's not kidding. Funny. And yeah. that's sadly why I'm laughing. Yeah. <laughs> and then after um Paul Bettany gives this angel an ass whooping, Gabriel says there's nothing I wouldn't do for God. And Paul Bettany says, and that's why you fail him. And I really actually, I really like that because it, you know, it's, it's this tension between is a friend, somebody who stands by you right or wrong, or is a friend, somebody who's like, dude, I love you, man, but you're wrong on this one. I've all, I, I do ca- hope I that's how all that. angels address God. Dude. 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 I love you, man. Yeah. <laughs> Angel movies in general, I guess are, a perfect playground in which to explore that sort of profundity and either it goes really well or it goes really poorly. But it does seem that with angel movies, there's a lot of room for them to go wrong. Right. I mean, (laughs) and I mean, I'm, I'm obviously I'm not religious at all. So maybe it's even harder for an angel movie to win me over than, than it would be for someone who was religious. But even stuff like when I was growing up, stuff, there was just stuff on TV like Highway to Heaven and Touched by an Angel. And these things just seem like the worst TV shows that could possibly exist. I just, I would, I would start watching them and I would just feel like smothered by this hmm. blanket of vacuous blandishments. But that's uh, the split when you're talking about angels, like angels in cinema and TV fall on one side of the line of sentimentality. Like, either being an angel is terrible because you can't experience what it means to be human, which is mm-hmm. trade as better than the angels, or angels exist because the afterlife is awesome and full of people who really want to make you feel better. Like, their whole job is to make you feel better. Well, I'm trying to think in terms of angel stories in the Bible, looking at it as a piece of fantasy literature, where their function is largely to be, in the old school sense, awesome. Whenever an angel shows up, it is a blinding light. It is an unbelievable sound. It is a voice that shakes the ground around you, and it is a huge supernatural event. I feel like the idea of the angel as the comforting presence that comes back to visit you is more of a, I guess, Victorian sentiment? Because nobody did over-the-top sentiment like the Victorians, right? Wait, but didn't, doesn't Jacob wrestle an angel? And I think he wins, doesn't he? I actually do not know who won Jacob v. Angel. <laughs> I have Sounds like it's time for a rematch. <laughs> <laughs> just just the idea. I, I've always found that just strange. The idea that a human could even wrestle an angel. Because I, I, I guess he was like a real, really awesome human who probably lived to be 600 years old or something. But uh, isn't the idea of angels supposed to be that you wouldn't be able to wrestle them because they're just superhuman? Also, they'd be able to fly away, so... <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, no, they wouldn't, John. Wait, yeah. I, I found something. Yeah, well, I was just looking over the Wikipedia entry for angels, and they linked to this funny article about uh, some biology professor said that angels wouldn't be able to fly. <laughs> oh, right. Uh, he says, even a cursory examination of the evidence in representational arts shows that angels and cherubs cannot take off and cannot use powered flight, says Professor Watton. And even if they used gliding flight, they would need to be exposed to very high wind velocities at takeoff, such high winds that they would be blown away and have no need for wings. And incidentally, fairies come under similar scrutiny in the paper. Hmm. The distortion of the thorax needed for flight in fairies with butterfly wings would be exceedingly uncomfortable, says the academic. For sure, fairies don't fly. Hmm. Well, They're magical so. creatures, Whoa. duh. 
Case closed. But wait, if they fly with magic, why do they need wings? I mean, it's like, it doesn't Stop make sense. Stop trying to apply logic. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, Jacob did not win the match with the angel. The angel used supernatural powers to cheat, and Jacob said he would not stop fighting until he was blessed. That is the echo of a lot of angel and fantasy literature business right there. They have more power over you, but if you just ask, surely they will give in, because at heart they are big, supernatural mushes. Yeah, so when uh, Genevieve was mentioning how the angels in, in the Bible were, you know, like sort of awesome to behold and, and you know, they had this blinding light and everything. Um, that sort of uh, makes me think of this story, Hell is the Absence of God by Ted Chang. You know, in that story, angels are like a natural disaster, basically, that periodically strikes. Um, you know, so like, you know, we have regular civilization, except that every now and then an angel comes and visits. But when they come and visit, they destroy stuff because they're all powerful or whatever. And, you know, people are actually blinded. Uh, a sort of random miracles happen sometimes in the presence of one of the angels. And so Hell is the Absence of God actually is about a guy whose wife uh, is killed by one of these angel uh, appearances. And then she went to heaven because, like, when somebody dies in this world, you can see whether they go to heaven or hell because, like, their soul sort of escapes their body and it goes either up or down. So he knows she went to heaven, but he knows that he's not going to go to heaven because he doesn't love God or whatever. And so the whole story is about him trying to figure out how he can be reunited with his wife, given these parameters. If anyone hasn't read Ted Chang's collection, Story of Your Life and Other Stories, and that's like one of the absolute must-read short story collections mm -hmm. of all time. And it actually has at least two other kind of religiously oriented stories I can think of. One, The Tower of Babel, where it's about you know the, the people building the tower up to heaven. And it's this very vividly, very cool story about the, the tower and it goes into a lot of the mechanics of the tower and just the, the massive scale of it and, and what happens when they finally reach heaven it's all it's really really fascinating um and then there's a story called 72 letters which is where um golems are created you know by carving the hebrew letters on their foreheads uh sort of in a mass-produced you know industrial revolution kind of society so in preparation for this i thought i'd uh i i, I tried to watch what dreams may come again and i you know i'd seen it years ago when it first came out, I guess. And um, I didn't remember it being very good, but I thought I'd give it another shot because the concept is really good. So in the movie, um, there's a man and a woman who meet and they fall in love and they have this wonderful life. They have two kids. Uh, so then their kids die in a horrible accident. And then the man dies and he goes to heaven. And then so his wife is left alone. You know, he can still watch sort of what's going on on Earth. And so his wife uh, commits suicide. Because she commits suicide, she goes to hell. And so uh, then the movie, uh, you know, the sort of the plot is about him trying to find a way to get back, you know, so that he can be with his wife. Um, and so he basically has to, like, forsake heaven so that he can go to hell and find her. See, Genevieve, Jeff, it sounds like maybe you have an opinion about <laughs> what dreams may come. I do have an opinion about what dreams may come. I, I think you hit the nail on the head when you were talking about touched by an angel and how it felt like you were being repeatedly punched in the face by gooey... <laughs> overdone, pappy sentiment. I have heard that the novel is much better and more nuanced, which I have no trouble believing, because Hollywood. But at the same time, I felt like the movie was two-hour reassurances of how amazing it's going to be when you die, except <laughs> if you commit suicide, because then you go to hell for sure. And aside from being the sort of movie where they actually have a scene where the entire family washes a car in slow motion, laughing <laughs> and spraying each other with water... Yeah to indicate that they were good people. This whole setup where he has to literally go to hell to, you know, get his wife back because he's just that heroic means that it's one and a half hours of computer design and then half an hour of platitudes. I'll say I, I couldn't make it through the whole movie when I tried to rewatch it just now. Uh, I, I only got about, I don't know, 20 minutes into it. But yeah, it's like the what? whole beginning. You're cheating! Well, the whole beginning, like you say, I mean, it's, oh, God, it's so much, so schmaltzy and everything. It's like, it's like, oh, look at all these montages showing how lo wonderful life is, you know? And uh, it's just, blech. So I haven't, I haven't seen the movie, but I did read the novel, which is by Richard Matheson, who yeah. also wrote I Am Legend and The Shrinking Man and other emphatically non-sentimental <laughs> novels. Good. And I don't remember the book actually being particularly schmaltzy. Uh, I mean, Good. the basic plot is fairly similar 
What really sticks with me from that book is that his view of heaven is very carefully worked out. There's actually a bibliography of 200 books or something that he read uh, speculating about what the afterlife is like. And the thing that, that really sticks in my mind is that people would say, oh, well, wouldn't scientists be unhappy in heaven because then they couldn't publish their findings in scientific journals? He's like, no, actually, the things that scientists discover in heaven get implanted into the dreams of scientists still on Earth. So then they do get published. You know, it really goes to a lot of trouble. I mean, I still don't think it works, but it goes to a lot of trouble to deal with questions like that, that as came up in the interview with Ted Williams, most accounts of heaven don't even bother to address. Almost every angel movie and every afterlife movie is about coming back and helping people who are human and therefore, in at least some ways, better than you. Well, I mean, there's definitely wings of desire, which I think in some ways is the, is the starting point and end point of angel films. Uh, it is a Vin Vendors film from 1987, filmed largely in black and white, and it is about two angels who are going about their duties, which are to invisibly comfort people on Earth. And it's done for what sounds like a Touch by an Angel episode. It is done with a remarkable amount of subtlety and a remarkable amount of sympathy, both for the state that the angels find themselves in and the state that people are in. So it doesn't, it doesn't gloss over how hard it is to be human. But there's sort of an understated isolation involved in being an angel where no one sees you and you can't actually affect the outcome of anything. All you can do is comfort those who are sad or dying. Um, and the comfort is incredibly important to those who receive it. But the angel that ends up falling in love with a circus performer and making a bargain to become human for a chance at love with her ends up being totally seduced by things like he can bleed and he tastes the blood and he can taste things. The film goes from sepia tone black and white to color. I think it's one of the few films that has managed to do the being human is better than the afterlife well, in a way that you actually believe that the human experience in all of its mundanity and in all of its questionable value at some times, that there is something about it that would be worth coming back for, which is my turn to sound schmaltzy, I guess. Hmm. And then they remade it. And it was City of Angels with Nicolas Cage and Meg Ryan. Wait, is that literally oh. a remake of that? Uh, more or less, yeah, oh. that is that is where the idea came from. Mm. Yes. I mean, John, you just you said that um, Christy had you watch that, right? <laughs> so you've actually seen that one, right? I have, I have. You saw the whole thing? I did, I watched the whole thing. <laughs> oh, sir. Uh, it wasn't my favorite movie ever. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, <laughs> I don't want to slam it too much because uh, my wife is a fan. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's about like you would expect from a Meg Ryan and Nicolas Cage movie. I mean, it's, uh, you know, extraordinarily schmaltzy and, uh, uh, not a lot of great acting or filmmaking happening in there. Not a lot of machine guns. No, and there's no machine guns at all, I don't think. Oh, and there's an African, there's a magical African American friend as well. Um, oh, good. and there's one in What Dreams May Come too. That's sort of a thing. It's like just, uh, you know, if, if there's an afterlife movie or an angel movie, then, you know, there's an African magical African-American friend uh, in there somewhere. As I was trying to come up with angel movies, I, I kept coming up with horror movies. And it seems it just struck me that so often in Hollywood, the depiction of an, the angels basically seem like demons. I mean, that's what Legion was like, right? The angels basically seem like demons. And I don't think that's an inaccurate portrayal. It was just striking me that it seems like in movies, the, the angels are all either scary, uh, sort of sexy, preternaturally beautiful lovers, or comic relief. And I, I, I couldn't really just cut offhand come up with many examples of angels as like, like superheroes. Uh, well, I mean, certainly the angel movie that had the most visibility, I would say, in my lifetime was Kevin Smith's Dogma. The, the premise basically are there's these two angels and they are out of God's favor and are stuck on earth. And there's this sort of sleazy uh, bishop or something, George Carlin, uh, in order to get more people to come to church, he's made this deal where if you walk through the doors of this particular church, all your sins are forgiven. And the angels realize that if they can walk through the doors of this church, they can uh, get back into heaven, even if God doesn't want them to. And there's, there's a lot of stuff I like in the movie, although there are some things I really don't like. And every once in a while, I'll start thinking about that movie, and I'll think about some of the things I actually liked in that movie and think I w might want to rewatch it. 
And then I remember the part about like the shit monster. Oh and, my god, the shit monster. And then I'm just like, nah, actually I'm gonna do something else. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think much the same thing. Individual elements of it were great. In fact, Metatron is a really good example of an angel who is neither awesome and fantastic to behold, or plucky angel guy who's here to make you feel better about yourself. He actually is an angel who has his own agenda. Um, and is involved very reluctantly because God said he had to. And it does tend to come up against questions of faith without picking a side until the last moment. But I think the problem with movies about faith is that you always do end up having to pick a side. Either it's stigmata and there absolutely is a God and Jesus is absolutely real. And that is the end of the film, period. You know, religion exists. Good job. Or... Someone thinks there's an angel and really they have been hallucinating for the entire film and there's nothing. Um, I do not know how you can have an angel movie and not eventually go one way or the other. I would love to see one, but I cannot remember one ever coming up. What did you think of God turning out to be Alanis Morissette? Hmm. I think we could have done worse. <laughs> well, it, it it was a little weird. I mean, I, I actually really like that, but... It was weird, though, that you had God presented as this very benign kind of... Manic pixie dream girl. Manic pixie, yeah, per- exactly. Manic pixie dream girl. But then in an earlier scene, the Matt Damon character says, God's all about vengeance, and he massacres this room full of corporate executives under the idea that this is going to put him back into God's good graces. And those, the Alana Morissette, Alanis Morissette, Magic Pixie Dream Girl, and the idea that God ever endorses... uh Wants and slaughter seem totally uh, incompatible with each other. Well, but then you're going back to the old idea that in the Old Testament, the God was like, that God was wrathful. That God was absolutely vengeful. And then he got sort of a new 52 reboot in the New Testament. And <laughs> God of love who sent his son and everything will be great. And since we're dealing with specifically New Testament ideology and almost all of dogma, I am pretty sure. Uh, it makes absolute sense that God would be benign. And I guess you could stretch it to say that since the angels were all created in the Old Testament, they would be acquainted with a vengeful God. Really, I think Kevin Smith just wanted to have a really good theological speech as a bunch of people got their shit killed. <laughs> and he was like, I can bend this however I want because it's theology and you can basically interpret theology however you want forever. Okay, well, actually, speaking of God, I mean, that actually brings me to another movie I wanted to mention, another classic called Bruce Almighty. <laughs> so, like, basically, Jim Carrey, uh, I guess he thinks he could do a better job than God, and so God's like, oh, yeah, try it for a week or something and see how you like it. God being and, Morgan Freeman, which is important to note. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jim Carrey, he gets his little computer where people he gets uh, people's prayers in his inbox and it's kind of like my inbox is just completely overflowing with unanswered emails. Um, but that seems really unfair because it seems like, I guess he does kind of have godlike powers to answer the emails supernaturally quickly, but he can never keep up with them. But it seems like if he had infinite power, he should have an in- infinite capacity to keep up with his inbox. But the, the, my problem with the movie basically is that at the end, of course, uh, Jim Carrey realizes that, of course, he can't do God's job. And so he you know, gives, gives God back his magic uh, computer or whatever. <laughs> and it just it just bothers me because uh it it just seems to me that the movie is promoting the same worldview that Voltaire satirized in Candide, I think to devastating effect, which is that there had been this idea that we live in that if God is all good and all powerful, et cetera, then we must live in the best of all possible worlds. And anything that seems crummy, it's just because you're not seeing the big picture. And I think that that's completely ridiculous. You know what's <laughs> completely ridiculous, actually? You just made a Voltaire reference. Inspired by Bruce Almighty. Okay, that's <laughs> well, just, let's just take a moment to stop and appreciate that. <laughs> and I do know what you're saying in that it seems patronizing at best to your audience to be like, no, no, things are fine, though. Yeah, well, like if I had the Jim Carrey computer, right, I could just be like, okay, now no more volcanoes blowing up and killing people. I'm done. I'm out. <laughs> you know, even if I were to just stop there, that's clearly an improvement, right? I mean, come on. I feel like if you had omniscient powers and anyone was still suffering then you have failed in your job because otherwise you're saying your suffering is because either a you're a bad person or b i wanted to teach you a lesson and in the first case that's a lot of pressure to place on the only person who is still suffering after you have deployed your powers and in the second case 
you're a terrible god and it should be removed immediately. Yeah, but getting back to the important part of this discussion, uh, I, I would <laughs> like to know um, what Voltaire would have had to say about Jim Carrey in Ace Ventura Pet Detective when he starts <laughs> pretending to talk out of his butt. You would be surprised how many Voltaire characters come this close to doing exactly that. (laughs) (laughs) I did want to mention one of my favorite authors, uh, James Morrow, who I think has written more about religion than any other fantasy and science fiction writer. He uh, wrote a trilogy that goes, uh, there's a book called Towing Jehovah, Blameless and Abaddon, and The Eternal Footman. And so in Towing Jehovah, God dies and his gigantic six-mile-long body falls out of heaven and just splashes in the ocean and is floating there. And so the angels come to this tanker captain and hire him to tow God's body to the pole to entomb him in an um, iceberg. And the, the main character, he's sort of like a, he's essentially the captain of the Exxon Valdez, having been responsible for a big uh, oil spill. So this is his chance at redemption if he can do this job right. The part where angels come into it is, you know, the angel shows up in the first chapter and hires him to do this job. And because God has died, the power of the angels is waning. And so this angel, his feathers are molting and he's just weaving behind, you know, these little feathers everywhere he goes. And I've always just really liked that image. And then in Blameless and Abaddon, they take God's body and they take it out of the iceberg and put it on trial hmm. uh, at the UN. And... That's a good, it goes through all the arguments, you know, for and against God, justifying, you know, justifying the ways of God to man. And uh, so if you want a little, little primer in that, in a entertaining novel form, uh, that's a good one to read. Well, here, I'll mention a couple that people mentioned uh, on Twitter for us. Uh, people mentioned C.S. Lewis's Paralandra, Sandman Slim by Richard Codry, Mainspring by Jay Lake, His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman. The Heaven and Hell series by Merle Lafferty, Good Omens by uh, Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman, and A Very Old Man with Enormous Wings by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, do we want to talk about the Constantine movie? Hmm. <laughs> it certainly deals with angels in the afterlife. Uh, yeah. I, I couldn't I couldn't make it very far into it. I just like when Keanu Reeves... Really? You when... sat all the way through City of Angels and you couldn't <laughs> make it through Constantine? Well, someone was making me sit through City of Angels. Um, <laughs> Constantine, like, when Keanu Reeves was on screen and he was smoking a cigarette and he couldn't even act like he was smoking a cigarette, (laughs) I was like, okay, I'm done. I do think that it tried to wrestle with some of the same things that we are talking about now. Um, And I think that Tilda Swinton did a fantastic job of being the Angel Gabriel uh, and occupying that sweet spot in between sounding like she's on the side of good but secretly being so creepy in a way that you can't put your finger on that you have absolutely no doubt that she is something more than human. And frankly, I think her performance alone is worth sitting through the entire movie, except if you're John, in which case apparently nothing's going to get you there. (laughs) And once again, we have the trope of Catholic woman who commits suicide going to hell, which I guess is is the afterlife version of plot cakes. Like, yes, of course the dragon took your girlfriend because plot cakes. (laughs) <laughs> so, yes, of course, people who commit suicide go to hell because plot cakes. Well, because I think it works because it's something that, given theological history, is recognized as a crime, but no, no one in your audience is going to hold it against the character, right? That's true. It's it's the technicality that's on the books of afterlife media. Um, but it, it shows a, a war going on between the forces of heaven and hell. Best depicted, apparently, by a sexy nightclub in which both angels and demons make out. But more pointedly, at the end, Constantine offers his life in exchange for the soul of the woman who committed suicide. And that's such a good deed that God starts to take him, and then the devil takes him back. And so basically you realize by the end of the movie that the cosmos are just a pissing match between two guys who don't get along. Paul Garan is, uh, has an anthology coming out called The Mammoth Book of Angels and Demons. Uh, uh, Genevieve has a demon story in there called Demons, Your Bobby and You. There, there's some good stuff in there. I was surprised to see uh, Ted Chang's story isn't in there, but uh, may have been rights issues or something. Um, you know, Neil Gaiman and uh, a lot of other uh, great writers have stories in there. Like, you know, Neil Gaiman's Murder Mysteries, that's an angel story. 
um, you know, Peter S. Beagle, Pat Cadigan, Tanya Huff, Caitlin Kiernan, uh, a lot of great writers. Um, and then there's also some other writers that have, uh, you know, demon stories as well, like Joyce Carol Joyce Carol Oates, uh, George R. R. Martin, and, uh, you know, folks like that. So you know, if you're an Angel and Demon fan, be on the lookout for that. There's another, um, another recent, uh, Angels anthology called Visitations, uh, edited by Stephen Jones. I don't have the table of contents of that one in front of me, but, uh, it, you know, has a similar sort of, uh, star-studded, uh, table of contents. Um, I'm pretty sure that one's focused on angels, but it might incorporate both. Um, I'm not sure. See, Genevieve, in your story, are there any angels or heaven? Or is it just all demons? Uh, no, my story is actually a YA, and it is about a high school sophomore who finds out that her semi-friend, a proximity friend, they live three doors down and occasionally do things together because they're so close together, why not, uh, has become impregnated by a demon over summer break. And it is how everyone in the school reacts to the idea. It is how her church reacts to her. It is what she decides to do. And our heroine is observing all of this and realizing increasingly that the things that surround the rhetoric of religion and the rhetoric of adulthood often ignore the actual person at the heart of them. In Paula Garand's introduction to her Angel Demon Anthology, she mentions a couple other popular series featuring angels. She mentions... There are some, there's one by Cassandra Clare, Sharon Shin, Faith Hunter, Nalini Singh, and more. I've heard of many of them. I think that unfortunately, repeated exposure to many of the movies that we have talked about <laughs> has sort of soured me on the concept of angels, unless I'm sure that it's going to be a slightly gritty or unflinching look. Um, however, I think that there are probably several authors that you have named that have turned their angels into superheroes in the mold that you were hoping to find earlier. Uh, let's see. She also, Paula also mentioned some movies here. Uh, angels in the Outfield. Anyone? <laughs> yes. Have you, has anyone actually seen that movie? Like, I can't even imagine <laughs> going to see that yes. movie. You saw it? Yes, I did. She sees everything. What are you talking about? <laughs> I Angel. guess, like, I mean, professional athletes are always thanking God for their touchdown. Or <laughs> like, I guess there's probably a big market for Angel sports movies. I don't know. They've probably all seen this. It stars <laughs> teeny tiny Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He was about six or seven. Oh, wow. Oh. Really? Hmm. Yep. And the signature move to summon the hosts of heaven to help you win your game was to flap your arms up and down like a bird having a minor <laughs> stroke. <laughs> my angels would fly down and make the pitch go really straight right past the bat of the enemy who apparently is deserving of all suffering and no assistance from god <laughs> actually uh you know my wife uh christy yant uh you know she's a writer and, and she's actually written uh several angel stories uh but she actually uh she has a story coming out in the shimmer magazine it's called the revelation of morgan stern and actually there's kind of a nice story that goes along with it you know, so for my birthday one year, she uh, she actually wrote this story for me. And at the time, we were still dating each other long distance. I was living in New Jersey. She was living in California. And so basically, she wrote a story. It's uh, It was basically like a post-apocalyptic story. And it was sort of like from her point of view, as if, you know, angels had sort of come and caused this apocalypse. And we would be trying to meet each other halfway. So she, so she wrote the story. Um, and she hand wrote it as if it was an actual handwritten thing after the apocalypse that she, that one could have found. And it was like sort of put together in a box and it had like some uh, apocalypse survival gear in it, you know, like just, so there's sort of a, a survival guide. Um, and there's like one of those blankets that, you know, it's like a, what is it, like mylar or something? It's like sort of a space age blanket sort of thing and a compass and that kind of stuff. So she put that all together in a box and gave it to me uh, for my birthday one year. Because it was a story written for me, she told me that, well, it's up to me whether she can do anything with it or not. And I'm like, well, of course, I would love for you to publish it. I mean, I think it's great. So, but yeah, so it's finally going to be published in November um, in Shimmer. You got to keep the blanket, though, right? I did. I did. I okay. still have it. I, I have the box. It's right on uh, right in my office here. And, uh, you know, it's great. It's a, It was a great gift because, you know, I mean, you know, when you have something like this, where it's like, you know, a lot of effort was obviously put into it. I mean, it just makes it uh, something that you'll actually remember and, and always treasure. Talk about schmaltzy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So Genevieve, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. And thanks again to Tad Williams for being our guest today. 
Since our last episode, Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was featured for over a week on the main podcast's page at iTunes, which caused us to shoot up to number two in the literature category, number eight in the arts category, and number 84 in the list of all podcasts. We also picked up a bunch of new five-star ratings, bringing us up to 182 ratings overall. We're really hoping to get up to 200 by the end of the year. So if you haven't done that yet, please open up iTunes, type Geek's Guide to the Galaxy in the search bar, visit our page, and click the Click to Rate button. Big thanks to everyone who's done that lately, including ATX Imperator, Batman KM, Just Some Random Passerby, Zero G's, K Warden, Tyler Lutz, Adam Doyle, P-Town 178, and Beware the Puka. Thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. And if you live in the New York area and want to meet up with me and other listeners, follow us on Twitter at GeeksGuideNYC. All right, so that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.